Today's episode is brought to you by me. Earlier this year, I wrote a best-selling book entitled Be Left Behind, Discover Bitcoin and Cryptocurrency Before Your Grandmother Beats You To It. If you've ever been curious about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, blockchain, and what's what the technology is about and where the potential for the market could go, this is the perfect book for you. It is also written in a way where anybody can understand. My mother loves this book and she is not technically savvy. In fact, the day after I gave her a copy of this book, she was explaining blockchain to my father on a trip to Chicago and it was hilarious. The book is available anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, or you can go into your local bookstore and request a copy. If you would like a personally autographed signed copy, go to yuricataldo.com and it's very easy to select one and reach out to me and I will be happy to sign and send you a copy of the book. This episode is also brought to you by meetfox.com. Meetfox is a women-run organization that allows you to monetize your time with online meetings. If you're a coach, if you're a consultant, if you're an expert that charges anybody to work with you, if you want to try something new in 2021 and start making money from your expertise, MeetFox is the perfect place for you to do that. It allows you to use their very simple in interface to schedule meetings with a single click. It allows you to set up your online meetings and charge for them with instant payments or automatic invoicing. It is a very simple, easy to use system. If you go to meetfox.com and use the promo code YURI at checkout, that's Y-U-R-I, you will get two months for free to test it out. I personally use MeetFox for all of my meetings, and right now I am a mentor that works with Mass Challenge, Techstars, MIT, and Yale with a lot of their startups, and this is my preferred platform. Right now, if you're stuck, if your company needs help with PR, marketing, media relations, or business strategy, or if you're just trying to think through how to transition to a new career, Go to advanceyourart.com or yuricataldo.com, find my Meet Fox link, and book a time with me. I would love to chat with you and help you through whatever problems you have. Welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you're interested in learning how to build a company, make money from your art, or transition to a new career, you've come to the right place. If you like this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Today, I'm sitting down with Michael Santoro, award-winning automotive designer. Michael, welcome hey. to the show. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Excellent. Excellent. So, so how are things in your neck of the woods? They're challenging. They're challenging. Uh, we, I do a lot of different things. 
And the thing that I focus most of my time on is being the president and chief creative officer of MacCase, which mm -hmm. is a company that created the Apple specific case market. So if you bought an iPad uh, case or a MacBook Pro case at some point in your life, uh, that all came about due to uh, MacCase. We were the first Apple specific case company, which was started in 1998. And so, I spend most of my days running that company and uh, you know, the sort of economic situation that everybody finds themselves in right now uh, is proving to be a bit challenging, but that's yeah. one of the things about being an entrepreneur is you have, you know, some years that are great and some years that are not so great. And you find out, you know, what you, what it takes and, and what you're made of by those kinds of challenges. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, I can, I bet that right now is a little bit challenging with just, everybody's uncertainty but um i mean at least the good thing is apple's not going anywhere and macbooks aren't going anywhere so yeah long term no, and it's it's you know and this year we've gotten a lot of new you know we call them form factors or new product from apple mm -hmm. so whenever they do something new it allows us to do something new as well so yeah. it's uh it's always good to have new stuff coming from apple because then it allows us to innovate and come up with the next great way to protect those products and uh like i said we've been doing that for 22 years and most of the companies that we started with or were around you know that came about after us kind of jumped on the the apple specific case bandwagon mm -hmm. are gone you know mm -hmm. there's there was a handful of us uh and mac case is still here so um it's it's one of those things where whenever i have a kind of a down day i remind myself of that or somebody here reminds me of that and <laughs> um like, oh yeah that's true yeah we're still going so that you know that means something so yeah oh great great so for for my listeners who are less familiar with with you and and what you do how do you describe yourself and what you do i call myself a design entrepreneur now um i started as a fine artist i was a painter um at the age of 17 i was accepted to a gallery in manhattan in new york city and my work uh, traveled around the country. I did tours through the gallery and was doing quite well. I was, um, I could have just stayed in New York and painted for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, and, you know, to be 17 years old and, and to going to openings and, and, you know, doing these sorts of things in the art world at such a young age, you know, it was, it was, it was great. It was just almost an overwhelming kind of, of teenage experience, especially in that market. You know, it's, it's one of the top markets in the world. So uh, I was pretty exciting, but the problem I had was I wanted to design cars. So um, across the street from my high school, I went to the high school of art and design in Manhattan and um, across the street from the school was a Ferrari dealership. And so I spent a lot of my youth with my nose pressed up against the window you know, oogling and, 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 and just fawning over those, those shapes. And I thought, well, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to put that kind of stuff into the world. And so when I graduated from art and design, I got a scholarship to Pratt and studied industrial design. I got out of Pratt and wound up folding sweaters at Macy's, which was a little bit humbling um, because it was the 1987 economic crash, the stock market had just crashed. And um, while I was feeling sorry for myself, I didn't feel so bad because the people that I was working, people that I were work that I was working with were like ex stockbrokers. Mm. So 
they were just, they just came from like 250, $300,000 a year jobs and they're folding sweaters with me for eight bucks an hour at Macy's at Christmas time. Wow. And so, you know, I was like, wow, it could be worse. I could be one of these guys. So, um, and that way it gave me some perspective and, but I didn't stop working on my automotive design, you know, uh, sort of projects. And I gave myself a sort of postgraduate um, project to do. Uh, I, I had an interview at Chrysler. I had interviewed at General Motors. I interviewed at Mazda mm -hmm. and a couple of other companies. And they all said, yeah, your stuff's really good, but you're just not there yet. And so in January, following the year that I graduated, I think I graduated in 87. So January of 1988, one of the directors who I interviewed with at Chrysler had called me out of the blue and asked me if I was still doing cars. And I told him that I was, I was working on this minivan project in my parents' basement in Queens. And he said, well, keep me posted. Let me know how it's going. And so every two weeks I sent him a batch of slides back in the day when you took pictures, slide, slide images of your work and put them in an envelope and sent them out and eventually uh, I got a call to go and do an interview again to return to Chrysler and interview again with them. Mm -hmm. The problem was it was on the same day that I was supposed to start Art Center, which Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California is probably the preeminent automotive design school in the world. And again, I got a full scholarship to go to Art Center, but the first day of class was on the same day of my interview at Chrysler. And if I didn't go to Art Center, I would be given up that full scholarship. Mm -hmm. So I had, it was kind of a crossroads situation. And I chose to go to Chrysler, you know, winging a prayer kind of thing, just gambled. And um, they offered me a postgraduate internship, which they had never done before with anyone. And I was there for eight weeks in the summer. And then the last hour of the last day, they offered me a job to join the staff to become a designer at Chrysler. So uh, most people don't realize this, but there are more players in the NFL than there are professional car designers in the United States. So as far as a job that's really hard to get, you know, uh, you have a better chance of playing in the NFL than you do becoming a professional car designer. So it's, it's one of those creative jobs, those art jobs that is just, you know, it's in the stratosphere when it comes to how many people actually get to do it. Yeah. And um, so I made it and uh, five years later, I was credited with designing the uh, car of the year in 1995 Chrysler Cirrus. Mm -hmm. And I did the sister vehicle, the Dodge Stratus. And then um, once that project was completed, I was moved upstairs and did the 1996 Jeep Wrangler, mm -hmm. which uh, was a great project because it was like this iconic vehicle. And um, you know, Jeep has a long history. It's sort of a storied history. And they're Jeep and, and brands like Harley Davidson, they have a lot in common mm -hmm. there. Uh, they have this almost rabid fan base. These, these people are completely passionate about the brand and, and the products. So getting to design an iconic vehicle like that as, a, you know, as an automotive designer was just a really special, special project to work on. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And, that's, and you're right. It's absolutely, you know, the, the, the Jeep people and, and the, the Harley Davidson people, they are, have their own exciting fan base which is always fun to watch i'm so I'm, I'm curious with this like what was it initially that got you so interested in being a car designer at an, such an early age i i think it was the fact that automobiles touch almost everybody even if there's people who hate cars right which is great <laughs> so you know you you have this you have this car culture and then that's all over the place. Even in a place like New York, there's this underground 
sort of culture of, of you know, automobile culture. But once you get out of that, uh, you know, real urban kind of context and you start traveling around the country, you see that there's a huge car culture in almost everywhere you go in the United States and in other countries as well. And I wanted to be involved in an industry that was bigger than any one person. And I thought, well, if I could do something impactful in that industry, then I, you know, I, I, real, I would know that I've done something, you know, I, I would have something to show. And so um, a lot of guys get out of school, a lot of, of young designers and you know, women as well get out of school. And obviously you just want to get hired because, you know, what I said before about how hard it is to actually achieve that dream of becoming a professional car designer. Yeah. But on top of that, you know, a lot of people, they just want to do concept stuff. They just want to do the cards that you see at the auto show that, you know, the dream cars from mm. 2050. Mm -hmm. But I, I wanted to do a production car. I wanted to get up in the morning, get on my bike, go out, go off for a bike ride and see my design on the road. And, you know, I was able to do that with the mm -hmm. Cirrus and the Stratus and with the Jeep. And so, um, so that was my goal going in was I've got to get a car out the door. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, that was my, I, I, I focused all of my, attention and, and my sort of learning process on how does this happen? How do cars get made? How, I'm now I'm here. How do I achieve this? Mm -hmm. And it took a while. It took about three years to figure that out because it is a complex process. But to, to want to do it as a, you know, as a young person, as a teenager, um, I, just, I just bought into the romanticism of it. I mean, automobiles represent freedom. They represent, you know, your ability to kind of to change your life, you know, how many songs, right? How many songs in pop culture and in the history of popular music involve cars and escape? And, you know, it's a form of, of making, improving your life. It's a vehicle, you know, literally and sort of metaphorically for getting, going someplace better, getting out of the situation that you're in. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I just bought into all of that <laughs> or maybe I, I wanted that, you know, myself as someone who took a subway every day to go to high school, you know, mm. back and forth, mm -hmm. um, you know, cars did represent a certain level of, of that sort of freedom. Yeah. Now there is some background noise here. I don't know if you're picking that up or not. Yeah, I am. I'll. If you want to wait, I think it's, uh, it's going to be it... about two minutes. It'll be done. Oh, okay. Yeah, here we can we can pause. Okay. Here I'm just gonna yeah, do this. I just don't this. want to make your life. It probably made your life easier to wait the two minutes. So. <laughs> it's okay. All right. I'll. Uh, here. So, what what was the the point that made you want to leave working for Chrysler and and move back to New York to be a, a consulting uh, designer? I think. I, I had achieved my goal more, even more than I could have imagined. Um, I wanted to do one production car. I got to do three cars in five years, which is it's kind of unheard of for any one person to be able to do so much, have such an impact and do so much work that gets out, you know, gets to production in such a short amount of time. Um, and I just didn't want to be the chief of all the Indians. Like the guys that I hired in with, or, or the guy that I, one of the guys I hired in with now is running Chrysler Design. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the boss of the whole thing and great. Like that's, you know, great. Ralph's a great guy and, and he should have that job. Like he's, he's, you know, he's, he's a leader and, and uh, his work is excellent. And, you know, he was somebody who stayed around, went through all the permutations of, of who owned Chrysler and what the management structure was and, 
he survived all that and now he's he's got the ability to shape the future of that company which is great but i i wanted to do other things and one of the things that i wanted to do was to have a company where i could go from my mind's eye with an idea to the market and have it be as pure as i imagined it in my head when i saw it on the shelf obviously when you work at a large company doing you know, creating products or even providing a service, uh, there's a chance for it to get compromised. And so uh, because of I, my background was in fine art, I tend to look at everything that I do with that, you know, with that philosophy. I, you know, two people don't do a painting. One person does a painting. It wasn't Van Gogh and Theo. It was just Van Gogh, right? So it wasn't Rembrandt and his brother or Rembrandt and his cousin. It mm -hmm. was just Rembrandt. So um so looking at looking through that lens of how can i have these ideas go from my mind's eye to the world the only way to really do that is to be in control of the process which is you know becoming an entrepreneur mm -hmm. and I, I always wanted to do that too my my two highest values are my creativity and my personal freedom hmm. so if if i want to achieve those values in the world if i want to make those values real then I have to own my time. And if the only way to own your time is, you know, not to have a boss. So <laughs> if, if anybody out there, you know, is, is sick of working for somebody else, you know, that might be why is because you want to have control of your time. And of course I want to have control of the creative process and how my work is presented to the world. Mm -hmm. So when you're a painter, you have those things obviously, but you, you know, you have to, you have to be able to eat as well. And, um, so coming out of this experience where I've got, you know, a lot of attention for the work I did at Chrysler, um, I was able to look at, at some consulting opportunities, which I took advantage of, but I also, I had this idea of like, what can I put into the world? What product or service can I create where I can really, you know, spread my entrepreneurial wings and, and see what happens. And, and so that's what, that's what led me wanting to leave Chrysler. My father told me I was insane, but you know, he's, he said, do what you want. It's your life. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. So, so you so you left Chrysler, and then how did you get that first opportunity, which uh, which I think ultimately led to you being able to design, you know, interiors for Boeing Aerospace and and Gulfstreams. But how did that first connection happen? The there's a, there's a company there's a company called Walter Dorantee, which is the oldest industrial design consultancy firm in the United States. In the history of industrial design, which is sort of the, it's sort of an applied art in a sense that mm -hmm. you're using art to make products, consumer products better. And this started in the sort of early 20th century. Um, and you had guys like Raymond Lowy, you had Teague, you had Henry Dreyfus. These are sort of the godfathers of industrial design as a profession. Um, and most of these iconic logos, like the Shell logo that was done by Raymond Lowy. And, um, but before that people, you know, it, there wasn't a profession called industrial design. And so Teague was one of the, the oldest one or was the oldest one. And, um, as a, as a consulting firm and they were in New York and I wanted to go back to New York and I thought, all right, this is a good fit because they do transportation stuff and mm -hmm. they had projects that were coming on board like Gulfstream, like Boeing, 
Mm -hmm. um, we were looking at Honda Jet, the uh, small plane that Honda makes. Um, that was an early concept that was developed at Teague that I was slated to work on. So there was some crossover between what I was doing at Chrysler from a transportation design standpoint and what I would be able to do at Teague. Most of the consulting uh, design offices in New York, they don't do a lot of transportation design. <laughs> so, you know, mm. they're doing lamps and tables and then that's all great. But, you know, I thought how cool would it be to go back to New York and, you know, do some transportation design in New York City, which again, it's, it's a pretty rare thing. Mm -hmm. And so Teague has the contract to do Boeing interiors. So I got to do a lot of concepts for a lot of different airlines, which was great. And uh, that's how the Gulfstream project uh, came about because they got the contract to do the Gulfstream 5, uh, the G5 interior. And I just, again, it was applied all of my automotive knowledge and skills and, and experience to working on trying to create this $35 million interior, basically. I mean, you, when you have... Uh, you know, when I was at Chrysler, if I wanted to put a nicer taillight on a car, they told me I couldn't because it was going to cost another nickel per car mm. and they couldn't afford that. Yeah. When you're working on a $35 million plane and you want to make the tables out of moon rocks, they're like, sure. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Do whatever you want, you know? <laughs> and so it was kind of the opposite, you know, experience, you know, you, the most exotic material you could think of if you thought it would be cool to put into the plane, you could do it because, you know, they just add it to the price. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it was, you know, it, it had the same kind of creative energy and it was, it was a very free sort of place to be in a sense of, of, you know, doing creative work, but I still had to be at work at eight o'clock every morning. And that mm -hmm. part was kind of, was kind of great on me in the sense. Yeah. yeah. So, with with those projects that you did in, in the years after you left Chrysler, what would you say has been the most, like the, the project that you had the most fun doing? Oh, well, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, I've, I've, I had a couple of projects. I mean, I loved working on the plane stuff at, at Teague. Mm -hmm. When I left Teague, I left because I got a call from Vector who had sort of a checkered past if you know anything about cars, uh, Vector started as a vision of, of an art center designer, a graduate from art center. Mm -hmm. He wanted to build the world's greatest supercar, basically a jet fighter for the road. And his company went public. He lost control of the company. And it was kind of a messy ending to that phase of the company's history. Um, this Indonesian conglomerate came in and bought it. And they hired a bunch of guys from the UK who knew how to put cars together. And they called me and they said, look, this is going to be an American supercar. We want an American designer on the project. And they flew me down to Jacksonville, Florida, where the headquarters was. Mm -hmm. And I became the consulting designer at Vector Automotive, which was great because I got to drive, you know, Lamborghinis and, and supercars all the whole time I was down there. And I got to work with this amazing, amazing group of people who were all hired guns like me, but they all had this history of working on some of the most important iconic cars you know of, of sort of our generation of, of the 80s and the 90s and that sort of thing and even the 70s and the guy that ran the program was Ian Doble and he used to he was the former director of Lotus Formula One and oh, wow. if I could have been anything other than what I became I would have wanted to be involved in Formula One mm -hmm. and I didn't know that I could do that like you know, I didn't know I could get on a plane and fly to England or fly to Marinello and, and 
sweep floors and eventually, you know, become part of a Formula One team. Mm -hmm. I wish someone would have told me that when I was growing up in New York City. Um, somehow Detroit just seems so much closer than, you know, going to the UK or going to Italy. Right. But um, so Ian had all these stories about running Formula One, running Lotus and Mario Andretti and, and just all these guys that I grew up watching on TV. And he, he was one of those guys, right? So you work 15, 16 hours a day and then you go to dinner and you tell me the story about this. Tell me the story about that. You know, he's just, he was there. He was the guy. So that was really fun. Um, you know, we got to do a lot of time on track, a lot of test driving on the track uh, in and around um, Georgia and um, Savannah Speedway. Mm -hmm. and do a lot of development work on the car, which I didn't do at Chrysler. I did a lot of aero work at, at Chrysler, worked in the wind tunnel a lot, but never did any real development work on the car, how, you know, how it should turn in, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just something that car designers usually don't get to do, and I got to do that at Vector as well. So that was a really, really fun project. Um, and then, you know, other, you know, then Matt Case kind of started, you know, I think it, I did a, a, a small project between my time at Vector and starting Mac Race, which was called Studio Pack. There was um, a need for a backpack for artists. I started teaching at Pratt and I went to this huge art supply store on Canal Street in New York City to buy a backpack because I wanted to ride my bike to school mm -hmm. um, to teach. And nobody made a backpack for artists. And I just thought, wait a minute, I'm a designer. I can figure this out. <laughs> this is not that complicated. It's just some cut and sew, you know? And, so I did a bunch of research. I realized that nobody had ever done this and um, sat down with a friend from Detroit who is now in New York going to another art school in New York to become a fine artist. Mm -hmm. And he was an ex-Ford guy. And the two of us got together and we designed this thing called a studio pack, which we got a patent on. And uh, that became the, the default backpack for artists. And that was the beginning of my entrepreneurial career. Um, I took studio pack from one product to 10 products in the first year. And it was a thrilling ride. It was just an amazing experience to learn how to do business internationally, to learn how to bring product in, to learn how to do, you know, international, you know, monetary transactions, all these different things that, you know, teach you in art school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I got my entrepreneurial feet wet, trial by fire, I guess, you know, people say, well, why should I go to business school and, you know, get this expensive degree? Well, they'll teach you a lot of concepts. They'll teach you a lot of, 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 sort of methodology, but they don't teach you operational skill. You get that on the job, right? And so that's, that's what I was able to do is to get all this operational skill very quickly and, you know, and very early on because I was wearing all the hats basically. Yeah. And it was, it was fun. That was also a really fun thing to do. And, and that ultimately became Matt Case. Uh, the parent company of Matt Case is called Design Star. So it was a Design Star Studio Pack. And then when I created the first case for the Apple iBook, um, we came up with the Mac case brand. And so the Mac case brand is still on the design star as a company, but, um, it's, you know, that the cut and sew, uh, access to cut and sew, you know, facilities and that sort of thing, how to bring product in all that stuff came out of studio pack. So yeah. when I, when I got the idea for Mac case, I just thought, okay, I know how to do all this now. And, but this market is so much bigger. The problem that I have with the art materials market was that nobody in this supposed creative industry wanted anything to do with anything creative. So hmm. it was really a struggle to sell a innovative idea, like a backpack for artists to the people in the creative industry, in the creative materials industry. And I just got really frustrated really fast. And it's a very small market too. Mm -hmm. And that was being killed off every day, a little bit at a time. 
by the internet and by digital technology. So, um, so I just needed to, I needed a bigger field to play on and the Apple space gave me that field. Ah, okay. So is, is that why you ultimately chose to go and create a, you know, a, a case specifically for, for Apple computers is it because of the market or was there another thing you were looking at that you saw an opportunity with? Yeah, no, the big opportunity, and I don't know if you're familiar with the um, um, Blue Ocean Strategy mm -hmm. book. Um, yeah. it's, it's, uh, if you're an entrepreneur, it's, it's a really good book to read because you can test whether your idea fits this criteria. And the criteria is kind of a blueprint for success as far as giving you the best shot for success within a given market. And Matt case was a blue ocean strategy before I realized that there was a thing called that. I mean, this, I don't think these guys wrote this book and came up with that term back in you know, the late nineties, but mm -hmm. um, what it was, was Apple customers typically back, you know, back in the late nineties, they appreciated design. They, there was still this divide. It's not so much now, but there was still this divide between the windows world and the Mac world. And they really didn't get along. There was this, you know, Bill Gates was big brother, Steve Jobs was a messiah, you know, this kind of nonsense. And so you have, you know, Gates, David and Goliath kind of mythology that was built up around the two companies. But Apple customers appreciated aesthetics. They, that's why they used Apple. Most of them were creatives. They were doing things on the Mac that were not accounting and spreadsheets. They were doing things that were creative. So I thought, well, this is this is my tribe, right? These are the these these are the folks that are going to appreciate, just like my my client base, just like my patrons when I was 17 years old, 18 years old, selling artwork in New York. They appreciated what I did. They looked at my paintings and said, "Yes, I want to own that. I get that. I, I, it moves me." And mm -hmm. so I thought, because these people are more aesthetically oriented, if I can design something that's so different and so radical and so endearing and charming versus all the other sort of boring black computer cases that were out at you know CompUSA or Staples places like that it's this Apple group will notice these these folks will take notice and that'll give me a really good chance of success mm -hmm. and it worked we took the case to the Macworld show um, in San Francisco the first year and it just blew up it was great it was a huge huge uh, response to the product yeah oh that's wonderful so with with the the different aspects of your career how have you thought about the idea of fear and uncertainty and have has that did that ever creep up when you were moving from one project to another or from one industry to another and if that's the case how did you push past it and and still continue to deliver high quality work yeah that's an excellent question because i think that there's, there's two two parts I think to to the answer. One is that um, a lot of people are so afraid of changing the status quo that they never take a chance at all, right? So that's the first thing that you have to be aware of: is am I afraid of this? And the fear is a good thing. Like you know, we're human beings are sort of trained to be fearful of situations that could cause us harm, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's how we've existed for 200,000 years. That's why we survived. But at the same time, if your present situation is worse, if your fear of change is, if, if, your, if your fear of your current situation is, is more fearful, if that, if, if that induces more fear 
then any fear of the unknown, then you know you've gotten to the point where it's time to change. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what I did was I think I really leaned on going back to my experience as a painter. When you're staring at a blank canvas, and I'm sure this is true for writers and, and you know, other people who do creative work, you've got to overcome that initial jumping off the cliff phase, right? So I just started another painting now. I just got asked to, to uh, be part of a, a new gallery here in, in, uh, in San Diego mm -hmm. that's opening in two weeks and I'm working on a new piece. And the owner said, I need that piece done in two weeks for the opening for this new gallery. And I turned and I looked at the painting and I said, there's no way I'm going to finish this in two weeks. <laughs> but there's that, that fear like, okay, now I've got to jump off the cliff. I've got to get this done. So I think that um, the thing that gets you through is, or the thing that got me through is that sense of I'm used to this. Being an artist means you're constantly putting yourself in situations where you don't have the answers. And if you do have the answers, you're not growing, you're not pushing yourself, you're not getting any better. I mean, like I said earlier, I could, I could have stayed a painter in New York and just kind of painted the same pictures for the people who wanted them. It wasn't that interesting to me. So I have this need for change. I think a lot of people are fearful of change. Um, to me, that's exciting. To me, that it's part of what makes life interesting. That you know, that's what I love about running Mac cases. No two days are really the same. That's what I love about, you know, I, I just uh, last, it's this time last year, I was working on a race car for Audi and I got to do deliveries for these race cars and I hadn't done deliveries in a really long time. And the, the challenge was pretty steep that the, the challenge given to me by the client, it's one thing when, when a client says, we want you to do this X, Y, Z, not just, you know, that's what we want. It's another thing when he says, do whatever you want. Oh, okay. That's a totally, that's much more of a scary proposition to do whatever you want. Cause now I got to do something great. Right. I mean, I could do something great anyway, but yeah. it, it becomes a lot harder when you have that kind of freedom. Um, so I think ultimately you have to embrace the change. You have to embrace the fear. It's part of the process. Anytime you get too comfortable, you, your growth, you, you stop growing. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you, you really, the, the, the experience, the experience of being alive, the excitement of being alive is when you're at the edge of that cliff and you know, whatever the project is that you're starting for the first time or starting for the hundredth time, but you're going to do it in a new way because that's going to be scary because you don't have the answer. I think that um, if you, if you start the project and you don't know how it's going to end up, then you know, you're onto something good. If you're very confident in knowing that you're going to be able to do it and it's not going to be a problem, mm -hmm. maybe you should be doing something else because <laughs> that excitement, that sense of the unknown, that's what creativity is all about. That's what, that's where we live. Like that's why we do what we do because the rest of the world doesn't want to do that. They want that safe little box that they can hide in. Right. And for me, it's always been the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And, and, like I said earlier, my, when I left Christ, my father thought I was crazy because he comes from a world where he wanted that security. Mm. But I think I had that confidence in myself to know that, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever I was going to do, I was just going to, you know, I was just going to do it the best that I could and it would be okay. Yeah. What does your process look like in the beginning when you, you know, first are coming up with a concept, whether it's, it's for a car or for, you know, what you did at 
at matte case or any other product that you have? Do, is it similar depending, you know, de regardless, or is it dependent on each individual, um, you know, item that you're designing? Yeah, I, I, it's, there's really two parts, right? I mean, as a designer, that's where design is different than say fine art, right? Mm -hmm. When you, when I'm doing a painting, I'm just doing it for me. It's just, I have my own standard of what excellence is. I have my own standard of what a great piece is, of what a great painting is. And I'm trying to achieve that. And I don't care if anybody else likes it in the whole world. As long as I look at it and I smile and it brings me joy, I don't care. Mm -hmm. Design is kind of not that way. It can be that way. You can get the same joy out of it, but it has to work for other people. That's mm -hmm. the difference. And so if I'm doing something for Mac case, then there's a customer base that's built in for that product. There is, I just, I just read it. We have a, a product that we call a folio. Um, mm -hmm. That is a kind of like a book that the iPad lives in. And for many years, we made it where the, there was a, a integrated pencil pocket for the Apple pencil. So when you got the Apple pencil, you flip this little tab up at the top of the case and it slid in mm -hmm. and the pencil was safe. The problem was not everybody used the pencil. The second problem was that when you went to fold it, it only allowed for two positions for the iPad to stand up like a, you know, like a stand or the type on it. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't allow a lot of flexibility because when you, when you folded this thing up, the pencil case was kind of in the way. So when it came time to design the 2020 cases, I thought, okay, how can I, you know, how can I improve this design? Yeah. And I came up with this magnetic accessory system, which no one had ever done before. Again, very innovative in, in this particular uh, world. And it allows the attachment of four different accessories to the front of the case. And it allows the customer to customize the case. But not only that, it allows the, the, the user angle, the, the viewing angle to be 70 degrees from about 90 degrees to about 20 degrees. Mm -hmm. So we went from only having two viewing angles to now 70 viewing angle, 70 degrees of viewing angle. So there was multiple improvements to the product because I had to empathize with the customer. What do they want? What do they, what are they looking for? So I think every project that you do, that's not fine art, has that empathy. People say, well, what makes a good designer? A good designer is empathetic hmm. because no matter who the, the user is, you have to empathize with their needs. What do they want? What do they need? Not only on a sort of, uh, on a sort of functional, in a functional way, it has to hold this, it has to protect this, it, you know, it has to work in their life. But also to me in, in more of an emotional way and almost in a spiritual way. Um, a lot of the products that I do, that I've done and, and that I do for Mac case, I try to imbue them with something greater than the sum of the parts. And we had one reviewer who was reviewing our product called the flight jacket, which is a vertical laptop case. Mm -hmm. And he said, his wife walked in the room and she said, I want that. And he looked at her and he said, you don't even know what this is. He goes, I don't <laughs> care. I want one. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of visceral, emotional reaction. And that's the same emotional reaction that I had to those cars, you know, back in high school, looking in the Ferrari dealership window and my nose pressed against the guys. I was like, I want one of those, like, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's, you know, it's easy to do that in a car because of the scale and you've got a lot more to work with, but to do that with a laptop case, you know, that's a little bit harder to do. Um, so it's one of those things where you know you're onto something when you start to imbue 
what people perceive as these commodity items with this emotional resonance, with this sort of, this, this ability to grab people and make them pay attention. And then you know you're on to, to something good. Yeah, yeah. So I've also noticed that um, you, have, you have a class that uh, you teach online and you've also been you know, part of other student design reviews as well as, as taught at other universities and, and colleges. What made you want to create classes and start um, you know, working with students? I think that the, you know, like I said earlier, automotive design is one of the hardest things to do professionally and for a creative person mm -hmm. as, far as far as, you know, achieving that goal of becoming a professional. And I have a lot of knowledge, right? You do something long enough, you get to know how things work. And I could see that there was a lot of, there was a need for, for, for some clear and concise information about how to go about getting started with looking at this potentially being a career. There's a lot of, there was a lot of online uh, YouTube channels and uh, there's some online courses that people were doing. And I just thought, again, you know, I could do this better. Like I, I, mm -hmm. I've got a little bit more information. Um, I could bring something fresh to it. I could bring a different approach. And, you know, I, I thought I could combine my real world, you know, teaching in the real, in real life, uh, to a digital platform like Udemy, um, where I could say, okay, what do I remember my students liking when I was teaching? What, what kind of feedback do I remember getting that was positive that, hey, you did a really good job with this, or you did a really good job with that, or what was some of the stuff that I tried that didn't work, you know, mm -hmm. and, and let's not do that again. So I think um, I wanted to give back at the end of the day. I think that's really what it was about, because it's, there are some fundamental things you have to know how to do when it comes to automotive design. There's a, a method of drawing where, you know, we, we grow up writing with our wrist, right? When we, when we learn to write our letters in, in grade school, we, look, we write with our hands. We, we write letters and numbers with our hands. Mm -hmm. And when we start drawing, we also draw with our hands. But to get the aesthetic of a, an automotive design drawing, you need to draw from your shoulder. Hmm. So it's a completely different process and I've had a lot of pushback from, you know, aspiring car designers who telling me that I was crazy or that they can't do it or, you know, and I'm like, yeah, because nothing worth doing is easy. Like you've got to work <laughs> at this stuff. And, you know, that's the one thing I think that, that made the difference for me throughout my career is the amount of grit that I seem to possess. And I don't know mm. how you teach that, you know, and, I just watched the movie Whiplash, which was basically the whole movie is about that idea of how much grit do you have? And there was, you know, use of negative reinforcement to prove that concept. But, um, you know, it, this is hard work. And I, I, you know, you see these guys on YouTube and they, you know, they knock these sketches out and they, they do it like in 10 times real time, you know, they, they yeah. fast forward that the, the, the video mm -hmm. and it may look so easy. But if you don't know what they're doing to get that look, because they're, they're not explaining anything, they're just showing you how, how good they are, mm -hmm. you're never going to get better. Hmm. It's like someone, you know, it's like, it's like Beethoven saying, oh, just play it like this. <laughs> you're like, what? <laughs> right. You know, you're freaking Beethoven. What are you talking about? It's like that kind of thing. You're never going to get it. So I think my, my goal was to, to, to bring a dose of reality to that world and also to give back and also to explain some of these concepts in a very simple way so that if you were generally interested in pursuing this, this career, you had a good foundation to start with.
Wonderful. So with everything that you have done and experienced so far, what would you say has been the best advice that you ever received? In my entrepreneurial life, the best piece of advice was don't make any fatal mistakes. And the person said, you can make a lot of small mistakes. That's fine. That's, that's part of the process. If you're not making mistakes, you're not growing, you're not putting yourself out there, you're not taking any chances. But if you make a fatal mistake, it's game over. Now, of course, you can maybe come back, you know, and try something else. But that's tough. That's tough in a lot of ways. It's tough if you have a family. It's tough financially. It's tough, again, spiritually, um, emotionally. Um, no one wants to, you know, go through that turmoil. So having that idea in the back of my head of, of not making any fatal mistakes or not making a fatal mistake um, has really helped me to objectively look at a lot of the opportunities that have come across my desk over these last 22 years. I think that um, there's a time to take risks, there's a time to take chances, and then there's a time to say, maybe that's not such a good idea. And again, you don't know, but I think as a, as a piece of advice, just to put that idea in your head that you can make a fatal mistake and that all this could be over. So it's, it acts as kind of a check against, you know, the sort of wild abandon. Because when things are going well, you feel like you can do anything. You know, mm -hmm. when you're selling thousands of cases a week and you're the number one case in a tier one retailer, mm -hmm. you know, you're number one brand in a tier one retailer, you feel like you can do anything. But at the end, there's, you know, there's always that chance where something can come along and, you know, it'll, it, all, it could all end. So I think don't make a fatal mistake has, has been good advice because it's, it's kept me sharp. You know, it, it hasn't allowed me to become complacent. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. If the listeners want to um, see more of your work or potentially, you know, buy, buy um, one of your, your cases or other kind of products that you're working on, where is the best place they can go to do all of those? To see the work kind of in its entirety, um, I would go to Michael Santoro Design com all one word mm -hmm. and for mac case it's www.mac-case.com you need the dash in there and you can see the full line of mac case products and then uh, if you're interested in in checking out the udemy courses it's under automotive design on the udemy platform okay. so it's udemy.com and then if you just type in automotive design into the search box it should come up it's at the top. Uh, I believe it's the most popular uh, course or two courses that I have on there now on Udemy uh, for that subject. Okay, wonderful. Well, I will, I'll make sure that I uh, post the links to all of those in the show notes so they can click right through. Appreciate that. Thank you so much. Of course. Of course. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate this. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your R podcast. If you liked this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to AdvanceYourArt.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again, and have a great day.